Looking to provide your school or organization with high-quality audio products at affordable prices? Andreas Communications specializes in designing microphones, headsets, USB adapters, webcams, and more to ensure online reliable communication. Their EDU series of products are built to withstand the rigors of classroom usage. Andreas Communication partners with iTutor to provide an exclusive discount for Learning Can't Wait listeners of 40% off their noise-canceling headsets. Head to https colon forward slash forward slash andreacommunications.com forward slash itutor forward slash today to access this limited offer. IPVO is making online learning simple for educators and students alike. Their affordable and lightweight document cameras let teachers simply plug and play to share anything homework, live demos, PowerPoints, videos, and more from anywhere. Compatible with any device, teachers can make the most of their document cameras with creative filters, time lapses, stop motion, and more through IPVO's free software, Visualizer. IPVO and iTutor have partnered to provide a 20% discount to all Learning Can't Wait listeners. Visit IPVO.com forward slash iTutor to upgrade your technology today. Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space, who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to today's episode of the Learning Can't Wait podcast. I feel like I'm coming home today, and you're going to see why in just a minute if you don't already know. Today, I have with me as our guest, Dr. Kelsey Young, the Director of Academic Research for iTutor.com. Kelsey, welcome. Thanks so much, Haley. Appreciate it. I'm so honored to have you here, both because you're a colleague and also because you're an absolute brilliant rock star, and I'm excited to talk about the topic we've chosen to discuss today. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So, Kels, start us off by telling everyone how you became the personal and professional version of yourself. Let's see. I think we actually have to go back to basically high school for me to kind of talk through that. My mom was still is a paraprofessional in a school district in Minnesota. We had a high school program that high school students could take their lunch hour and actually go give paraprofessionals their lunch break. And so you'd go and work with students with disabilities in the special education classroom. From there, I just kind of fell in love with that work and those students and continued down that field. I then became a personal care assistant in that field. I became a behavior therapist and then eventually consulted for a private behavior therapy company and went on to grad school where I got my degree in educational psychology with an emphasis in special education, specifically supporting students with autism, identification of autism. So from there, I actually left grad school and went and consulted at the Colorado Department of Education again, supporting students with disabilities out in districts in Colorado and was really noticing the things I was researching and working on in 
at the university, we're not really in practice at districts in Colorado. And so I really wanted to find a way to marry these two worlds of having a really research intensive academic background that more immediately impacted and benefited the field of education. And so it led me to kind of this more applied line of work, um, still conducting research, but doing it in positions where I felt like I was more immediately benefiting educators and students by putting a lot of that research back into their hands. Okay. I'm definitely excited to talk about that latter topic today, which I know is the focus of our conversation, but let's go back for a second because you're naming this amazing program when you were younger that got you interested essentially in becoming an educator, which you know, there's a major dialogue right now in the in the country yeah. about teacher shortages. That sounds like it served the purpose that a lot of schools are trying to do, which is like grow your own teacher. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think so. I think it was so insightful and such a wonderful opportunity for a high school to provide to just give you limited exposure to that, but still exposure during the school day. Like you didn't really have to sign up for anything else. You didn't have to stay after school. It was during your school day and you got to go work with both paraprofessionals currently in that field and hear from them, learn from them and these really amazing and wonderful students. So yeah, I think it was so insightful, so helpful and really motivating for kind of my career path. Yeah, absolutely. I love to hear that. And then the second thing I love about what you've shared in that little anecdote uh, that really profound anecdote, not little, I shouldn't have used that word, um, but profound anecdote is the the impact that working with para for professionals have. You and I have spent some time talking yeah. um, with districts and with each other about the role of a para professional, the yeah. way our schools uplift or do not uplift para professionals. So what did that experience do to solidify their importance in a classroom in your mind? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think having been a paraprofessional, you realize how close you are with the students and how you are the one providing most of the direct instruction to that student. And so I think it really helped keep this mindset of when I got to the state level and was training educators, ensuring that that training could still reach paraprofessionals and was being offered to this, I think, really underserved and underutilized community. They are the most in touch with our students. They do provide the most direct instruction. So why are we giving them the least amount of resources to do that with? Um, And so I think that was really helpful in ensuring I was always keeping that in the back of my mind when I was conducting professional development or working with districts, that it wasn't just with the educator or the speech pathologist, but ensuring that paraprofessional was always brought into those conversations. I love whenever I discover another layer about you and, and another, it gives me a deeper insight into why you're so passionate about the topics that you're passionate about. Yeah. And I mean, it, it really goes to say, it really goes to the point that, you know, educators in this space and ed tech specifically have like varied experiences that help to be the foundation of why they care about what they care about. So let's dive in a little further to that. You yeah. spoke about your time at the Colorado Department of Education And I've heard you speak often about implementation science and the research to practice gap. So at a theoretical level, what are we talking about when we say the study of implementation science? It seems pretty highbrow. Can you break it down for for me and our listeners who are like, maybe need some help? For sure. So luckily, implemented 
Implementation science, I feel like is pretty aptly named because it's basically the science of how to implement. It is really the study, scientific study, I'd say, of methods, strategies that really facilitate the uptake of evidence-based practices by practitioners, policymakers, um, and just ensuring that research is out in the hands of the people who are actively using it. Now, take it a step further. So... Are teachers reading research journals? Some of them are. And and if they are, how do we get from, oh my goodness, look at this large scale randomized control trial that tells us Mm -hmm. X works. Yeah. Then what happens? Like how, how come it's not that everybody adapts, adopts what works immediately and has the same result? Yeah. So I think that's really getting at like kind of this centerpiece of implementation science and adoption of these practices. I think one, you're naming something really critical. Research is not accessible to educators for a variety of reasons. One, it's not written that way. Two, it's a lot of times behind paywalls. And so it's just physically not accessible. And three, it's not necessarily written to facilitate the adoption of those strategies. I actually wrote a paper with some co-authors a few years ago now about assessing evidence-based practices specifically for supporting students with autism. And through that, we were kind of going through these articles and coding what factors they actually listed about that practice. Did they identify the population it was used with? Did they identify the dosage, how frequently they should use it? Did they identify all of these other factors that would be really important for someone to be able to take that and adopt it and then use it in their classroom? And we found that a lot of times they didn't have those necessary features. So even if you can get to that article, you pay for it, it might not even have the necessary components for you to read that and say, okay, great, I can go use this in my classroom. So I think that's one piece. That's a huge hurdle. Huge. Yeah, huge, huge, huge hurdle. So that's one. I think the other big thing that you're naming is we're a lot of times looking at more rigorous research. So this randomized control trial, it has this really strong level of evidence. Fantastic. And naturally, we want our districts to adopt things that have really strong levels of evidence behind them. But because they're randomized control trials, because they're so rigorous, they've been very, very tightly controlled. And so everything is implemented in a very specific fashion, typically what we say with fidelity. So there are parameters you need to implement with to realize the benefits of this practice. Now, knowing that districts face a lot of barriers, a lot of constraints, It's, I think, kind of unreasonable to say, hey, just adopt this and go put it in place exactly as we prescribe. Uh, I mean, you were an admin. Could you just readily take any practice and put it in place and say, yep, good to go? Surely not. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's so many barriers that get in the way of adopting something as it's prescribed. So that's where I think the onus is really on the research community to one, involve these stakeholders from the start of the research to say, hey, these are the things that we're noticing that we really want to address. We want to improve. Here's our research questions. What are your questions? What are the things that prevent you from adopting strategies, from adopting practices? And how can we kind of build that into our study? So this is something we're conducting jointly, not just me as a researcher doing research to you, but rather with you. Um, It's a really partnership experience where we're doing this together and discovering 
how we can make this work in your setting, knowing you have all of these barriers, whether it's funding barriers, resource barriers, like personnel, training barriers. You just don't have the culture that's really ready for this shift and change. There's so many components that go into why a district can't adopt these things that we really need to kind of break those apart and work with them to ensure we're building practices and strategies that can be more readily adopted. I appreciate your naming of this idea of a partnership. I think for a long time, the community that we're in at Tech, which is full adjacent, really didn't have that, that particular name, a partnership between research and school and vendor. But I want to go back to one other idea, one other kind of thought you've put in my head as we've discussed this topic ad nauseum, which is even if you have that partnership, you don't get 100% adoption and compliance. There are certain characteristics of an adoptee that make them more likely to be able to implement the research with fidelity. Can you talk to the audience a little bit about those characteristics? Yeah, that is, I think, such a good point. And I think helps understand the complexity of implementation science and all of the factors that we have to consider from this outer setting. What are components that make this district at a high level ready for this practice change to the inner setting? What are the policies within this specific school down to the individual? What are their characteristics that make them maybe more ready to adopt a certain practices? And so I think I like that point of there's a lot of layers here. There's a lot of complexity. Um, And so it's not just working through like an implementation study that says, hey, maybe we can change dosage a little bit and we still see the same results. Uh, Maybe we don't have to implement this in school, but we can do after school and we still see the same results, Um, which I think is one piece. Running implementation studies to say, how can we adapt this a little bit, maybe not implement exactly with fidelity and still see results. But the other thing you're naming is that individuals have a lot of sway over if these things happen. And I think that's where, for me, it comes back to kind of dissemination, how we're sharing this, how we're communicating this with this audience to one, build a case for why it's important. We know there's been good research that Educators don't necessarily care that this publication said this is important. There needs to be a real real world and tangible reason why it's important. What is it going to do for them? Is it going to make their job easier? Is it going to help them better support their students? Is there a relative advantage of this practice over what they're currently using? And I think that's where we, again, as researchers, administrators, anybody really disseminating this needs to have that in the back of our mind, that we can speak to our audience and say, this is why this is going to help you, not just you need to do this because we say it's research and evidence-based. I think this is why I'm so compelled by what's going on with the Sold a Story podcast, which is this storytelling, that journalism that's coming out, expose on the science of reading and the way that large portions of America, many, 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 many school districts adopted what is now known to be a failed curriculum that doesn't improve outcomes for students learning to read. Yeah. I think there's a confluence happening. Some of the factors you're naming, right? The science, the research is there, but it didn't, the research didn't do it right away. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of 
people understanding the problem and the options around the problem. And it also took some real journalism to stir up the nation's uh, moral compass Mm -hmm. about curriculum adoption in the U.S., to change what is going on today. I mean, have you been following along with the Soul to Story podcast? I have not. So I'm very curious to hear this because I, I mean, you know me, I love journalism and storytelling around data. You know, that's a favorite of mine. (laughs) (laughs) That's, I think, so interesting and so telling because something we used to talk about. So I will be... A little self-deprecating. Academics are not usually good storytellers. We're not usually good journalists. We Usually. You are a definite exception to that, Dr. (laughs) Kelsey Young. Thank you, Haley. Um, But yeah, I mean, we write in a very specific style for a very specific audience. And so there's not really a motivation to necessarily create this really... Uh, stirring, motivating story around data. I think that skill had to develop for me because, as you know, I was so passionate about my research at the university. And then I got to training on that to all of these educators in rural regions of Colorado who didn't care about it. And so I really had to figure out how do I get better at storytelling around this data to engage audiences better, engage non-research audiences better? Other academics, fine, I can probably publish this article and say, hey, they'll take notice. But again, that's not accessible and not working for most of the audiences who are actively using these practices. Um, so yeah, I absolutely love that I think more we're seeing more areas where that's being adopted. People are really understanding that journalism and storytelling needs to surround data to encourage notice of it and then use of it. I think a good, another good example of that that I know you're familiar with is the dialogue around high-dosage tutoring, how Annenberg Institute and their definitions of high-dosage tutoring based off of research has really, I mean, you literally see, I mean, you and I are seeing uh, RFPs, response for proposals, where they're literally saying high dosage tutoring as defined by Annenberg yep. Institute. Yep. Did you ever guess 15 years ago that that's how RFPs would be written? Like, it's incredible to see the it momentum. Is. It is. And I think that's so great. I think we see that with funding cycles around ESSA funds, ESSER funds that are really incorporating evidence into that and saying to use these funds to purchase these services, we need to see this level of evidence. So I think that's fantastic. And I love that piece of ensuring and embedding evidence into what districts should be adopting and using funds for. I think that real sticking point that we keep getting to is Annenberg Institute, those principles of high dosage tutoring are fabulous and wonderful. And there are a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And so we know if we want a district to implement that with fidelity and follow their guidelines for what high dosage tutoring looks like, that's going to cut a lot of districts out. They just can't afford that. They don't have the personnel for that. They don't have the time for that. I mean, we know standards are increasing and they need to incorporate the science in reading. They need to incorporate all these other practices. And so where are they going to fit supplemental instruction into their day to meet high dosage tutoring requirements? And so I think that's another piece where These are great parameters and starting points. And now how can we conduct research in a way to say, this is where we should start from. But for this population under these circumstances, we can actually get away with maybe two days a week or 
three days a week, but at shorter sessions, or we only need to run it for 12 weeks and we still see gains. And so that's really where we get that at that piece of for whom and under what conditions. So these are great principles. Who do they work for and under what conditions? And how can we adjust that or kind of play with that to make this a practice that can be more readily adopted by a number of districts? I'm such a nerd. This is like the most exciting topic to me. So one of the authors of the original piece on accelerating student learning yeah. with high tutoring, which was by Annaberg, which is Susanna Loeb, just yeah. commented on some preliminary research that shows an impact of 15-minute sessions or even yeah. shorter of, of intervention, or of, I won't use the word intervention. We can have a whole nother episode about intervention of tutoring in concentrated forms, very short sessions. It could be under yeah. 15 minutes. And, uh, and I hope I'm saying her name correctly, but Dr. Loeb said, this is incredibly promising to see these type of results yeah. under conditions that differ from the accepted high dosage tutoring model mm-hmm. offers a lot more opportunity at a more financially accessible manner for schools to implement that will have a profound impact on students. And so I have been kind of nerding out as this research comes out because I'm like, cool, we're getting more information about, yes, high usage tutoring works, but what else works under what conditions and to your point for whom? Yeah, I love that because I think that's where it is, again, our duty as researchers, our duty as ed tech providers to say, hey, we know this is the model, but how can we look at all of these varied implementations? Because I mean, <clears throat> reality is we can look at how many different of our clients and say, yeah, they're all using tutoring in some capacity, but the implementation looks different across so many of these districts. Um, and we're using it with so many different populations. And so that's where I really hope EdTech kind of adopts and really incorporates research just more naturally into their work, because we have such wonderful studies at our fingertips to say, here's a naturally occurring kind of manipulation of that study design of those principles. And how can we analyze data from that group to say, you know what, actually, we saw this group who only used twice a week for six weeks, still saw some gains, or whatever that variation to that standard model looks like. Because I think it gives us such wonderful results, like what you're pointing to, that for a group of students, 15 minutes was enough. Maybe it was there's six something- to seven minutes. I just looked up the article because I was amazing. Like, I even seven better. Seven minutes called short bursts. Of okay. Lovely. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. That's so great because I think how wonderful for schools to hear, you know what, if you can just do seven minutes, three times a week with these students, but it's really targeted, you're actually going to see some gains. So I think it, it's it's just moving us so much closer to breaking down these implementation barriers for districts, which it is. That's on us. We need to work on breaking those down because we're the ones saying, hey, this is what you need to do. But we also need to work on saying, but also this is how you can adapt it to make it work in your schedule. Um, and I'm also super curious to look at that and see, is there a specific population they use this with that they saw these really great gains? Because maybe that's enough. Love it, which makes so well, much I just, sense. I just sent you the article and we'll link it. How about we link it when this Love episode that. goes live that people want Love to read it. it. The original, the piece that I read was in Hessinger and it was written by none other than our friend, Jill Barche, who writes a lot of the pieces we rapidly read over here. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, you know, Kelsey, you're naming this point. Like 
I, you're like, I'd love to read it. I'd love to know. I'd love to find out. It's like, that's what happens right now. That's what I feel like is happening right now. There's such an abundance with the spending of ESSER money. There's yeah. such an abundance of things being tried to help accelerate learning after this three-year period of trauma and interrupted learning. So yeah. we should be really excited about the level of data we should expect to see, particularly this year. Yep. That indicates here's what's really obviously working. Here's what's not. Here's what we didn't think about before. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like we're about to hit a real boon in research over the next year or so as it relates to pandemic affected learning. Yeah, definitely. I think that was probably something you saw with research coming out during the pandemic is it was all so new that it was so hard to really understand the impact of that because it was currently happening. We couldn't even get students in school long enough to take an assessment to say, hey, what's happening? And so I think we're kind of on this precipice of, okay, we have most students back in school. We're starting to get back into some regular testing cycles. How can we now use this data to help us inform what's working and what's not working? Which is really the ultimate question of implementation science a lot of times is, what's working for who and under what conditions. How can we adjust evidence-based practices to ensure that they're going to work for these students in these circumstances? I love it. I I know that I personally have grown tremendously as as a professional getting to work with you and learn from you about this particular topic as well as many others. And I'm hoping that as our listeners are are tuning in today, they're, they're feeling similarly I know that you made a choice to enter ed tech some years ago. Yeah. Um, you've had an opportunity to spend some time in a couple of different ed tech organizations. I think my final question for you would be, what would be your hope for ed tech companies embarking on research? How would you ideally like to see them frame that study? And yeah. what would you hope they would do? I think it really comes back to that partnership for me, that it is we're conducting research almost on your behalf to answer your questions. I think ed tech is this unique world where we obviously always want to get good outcomes. We want to be able to say this is making a difference for students. And so I think it's having to set that piece aside for a second and say, what are your most most pressing questions and how can I address them for you? How can we conduct research that not only answers those questions and tells you if this is working and how it's working for what students, but also lets us know how we can refine our services. How can we be better? Um, And so that's where I think I really enjoy the possibility of just taking evidence-based practices. So taking those principles from Annenberg Institute and saying, how can we moderate or adjust these a little bit to see what could work for these students with lower dosage, higher dosage, different timing, maybe different staff members, um, whatever that manipulation might be to meet those districts needs and more readily encourage or facilitate adoption of this practice. So how can we get an evidence-based practice in place at their district with their barriers in place? How do we mitigate those? How do we break those down for them? Um, So they can adopt these practices and realize the benefits of them. Because that's really the point in all of this is how do we get students to realize the benefits of evidence-based practices? 
Right on. Right on. <laughs> this work is done in partnership. I love that. Dr. Kelsey Young, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to help educate myself and the listeners on implementation science and the research to practice gap. I'm so grateful you joined the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Haley. It was a blast. Thanks for joining everybody. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com. Grow your teaching staff with just one click. iTutor partners with state licensed teachers from across the U.S. to help schools provide additional instruction to students. Whether you need them part-time or full-time, our educators are standing by to get you started right away. Head to itutor.com to learn more.